you guys stepped away from the Catholic Church and your Catholic faith uh, because you were thinking about it deeply. You guys are very deep thinkers. You process what you hear and you want to be right. You want to please the Lord. It comes across in the conversations that I've had with you. Um, and so I think what happened in your life was that you begin to process and think about scripture. You begin to think deeply about God's word. And so Absolutely. in any place that we are at in our relationship with God, no matter what church you're at, whether it's a Catholic church, Living Word church, any other church, if we believe that the Bible is the very breathed out word of God, it's divinely inspired, it's profitable for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, it is God's word, then we should test everything with scripture. Well, if, if, if the church is saying this, this is the way that someone is saved, if the church is saying this is the way to receive forgiveness of sins, if this is what the church is, say, is saying where I'm at, but the Bible doesn't say that, then, you know, the scripture should be our highest standard. It should be the litmus. It should be the, the, the litmus test. And so tell that story about you and your daughter and uh, her, her school experience yeah. in scripture. So because I didn't go to Catholic school, mm -hmm. I had um, all of these assumptions about what my daughter would learn as she went into high school, Catholic high school. And one of my big assumptions and my big desires was for her to start really studying scripture. I thought that was gonna, that was gonna happen. And I had already begun this process because she was um, second grade when my mom passed away. So we're talking about years of right, what I was mentioning earlier, years of me really just trying to find my way through this and I had already started studying scripture and so I was really excited and when she got to high school that is not what happened and so I just asked a lot of questions she probably thought I was a little off kilter because I was constantly asking about her religion class and so I asked her one day because she never really talked about and never saw that they were truly studying scripture I asked her I said do you have Bibles in your religion class and she said yeah, and I said, do y'all like have them like in your hand? Like, do you use them? And she's like, well, they are, there's a bunch of them in the back of the room. And I said, well, do you ever take them out? Like, do you ever study them? And she's like, well, we haven't yet. And so we had this conversation. And then just a few weeks later, I go in and she's doing a religion assignment. And I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm doing an assignment for religion. And I said, oh, what are you doing? She said, I have to answer these questions. And I'm thinking like, you know, she's okay. Now she's like having to go into the Bible and find some texts. And laying open on her desk was the publication from the diocese. And I said, well, where are you answering these questions from? And she said, we have to find them in this publication from the diocese. And I was crushed. And actually I got very angry. And I told Kirk, I'm like, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? She's not even studying scripture. And so, and I'm not saying they never study scripture, sure. but in my experience, everything I thought that was gonna happen wasn't happening, but I knew how important it was. Like I was already seeing it in my life, right? So although I maybe wouldn't have expressed it like that to you then, sure. I already saw how important it was. And I just wanted my kids, if I was going to send them to a religious school, like surely they should be studying the Bible and that's not what happened. And so it was a, palpable moment to me that there was just so much there that I now consider unnecessary like to, to know all those things is trivial like why do you need to know all those things when what you really need to know everything you really need to know is in the 
pages of your Bible. We knew one uh, one person, I don't, I don't want to divulge names, but um, she would open the Bible up every morning and just it would just be a random open and pick a spot to read and would read the scripture and and study, but but find how that applied to her life almost on a daily basis, and it sometimes yes it would really hit home, and sometimes you know, and she was told that's not how you do it. Right. She was told by a priest. Yeah, by a priest. And that's she not, you know, she um she defied that order. Yeah. She would tell yeah. you she felt like God was telling her to read His word, but that yeah. was very unusual. Yeah. We had Bibles at home; they were never opened. No, I it think, just you know we just did you didn't open them. I mean it was and and you know looking back at that it's it's almost <laughs> it's almost uh, no you just need to do these sacramental things and right. and that's that's like it's it's almost like the Bible's like yeah it's almost like the Bible was lanyap. Did y'all hear that last line? It's almost like the Bible was lanyap. So that's what we're going to talk about today: the Bible. Talk about God's word. And I would encourage you, if you weren't able to listen to the first message last week on this Reformation series, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's on YouTube. You can watch the beginning part of Connie and Kirk's testimony. And you can also hear the foundation of this entire series. And this series will be six weeks in its totality. And we're looking at the Protestant Reformation. And I believe that it's important that we know our history as to the reason why we are Protestant and not Catholic. And as I said last week, all of us, I think 100% of us, have been touched by the Catholic Church in some way, shape, or form, whether we used to be practicing Catholics or we have family members that are practicing Catholics or, 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 or friends, coworkers. In some way, shape, or form, all of us have been touched by the Catholic Church, especially in this part of the country. And so I know that this series, for some people, is not an easy series to listen to. For some people, it's challenging and it could seem offensive and uh, and none of that is the intention. The intention is, is that we would look at one of the, the, from my estimation and other people throughout church history, one of the greatest uh, reformations in church history took place over 500 years ago, 503 years ago, was when the, 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 one of the biggest sparks of that reformation took place. So I just want to encourage you, go back and listen to that message from last week. And, and what we're going to do is this week, that last week we talked about why was the reformation necessary? Why did the church need to reform? How had they gotten off of the, the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what was added to scripture? What superstitions, what dogmas were added to scripture that diluted the gospel and in, in, in most cases made it an, an impotent gospel? A gospel that has no effect and no impact. If it's not the pure gospel, it has no impact. It's gotta be the gospel as revealed to us through scripture. And so that's what we talked about last week. And over the next five weeks, we're going to look at the five solas of the Reformation. We're going to look at the five core tenets of the Reformation, what the Reformers stood for and why they, why they pushed back against Rome and why they said, no, this is not what Scripture says. This doctrine, this dogma, this superstition, this tradition, what this church father said, on and on, this is not what Scripture says. And they framed it in, in such a way that it was Scripture alone. That's, that, that, that we have faith and salvation comes by scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. And this morning, we're going to look at the foundational view of scripture is the final authority. Scripture alone is the final 
authority in our life. And is the authority that determines truth and morality and, and how to practice our faith, how to live our faith, and how to come to faith. So this is what we're going to look at. I've titled the message this morning, Who Has the Final Say? Would you, would you pray with me? God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the privilege of thinking and talking about your word here today. God, what a great privilege it is that we would gather to, to, to hear your word, to read your word, and to learn and to grow in our faith. And I just pray that, that you would help all of us here today to receive from your word, to hear the truth of scripture and to be changed and transformed by it. And God, I pray that you would help me to communicate clearly, help me to open my mouth, to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are many foundational scriptures I could go to that would lay a foundation for why we believe in the authority, in the inerrancy, and the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. I could go to many other texts, but there's one text in particular that, that to me is the premier text that is a foundation for the belief that scripture alone is the final authority. And it's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Listen to what God's word says. It says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is the very breathed out words of God. That means that the Bible you hold in your lap, the Bible that you read every day, is the very breathed out words of God. It is God's word. It is God's word. And God's word is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, that we may be fully equipped. We lack nothing if we have the word of God. We can not have a lot of things in this life, but if we have the word of God, we can be thoroughly and fully equipped for every calling and every good thing for salvation and for the Christian life. We lack nothing if we have scripture. Do you believe that? Not convinced. No, I'm joking. That's what scripture says, right? I'm gonna do something here that's a little different. We did a little history lesson last week. We're gonna do some more history lessons about the word of God. So just buckle your seatbelt a, a little bit and listen to the history, some history about our, our scripture. And we're gonna talk a little bit about Martin Luther. We're gonna talk a little bit about another man in history as concerning God's word. On April 17th, 1521, this would be, this would be Almost four years after Martin Luther, as we talked about last week, nailed his 95 complaints on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And do you remember what I said last week? Luther's idea was that he, he didn't want to do away with Rome, right? He didn't want to do away with the papacy. That was not his idea. I want to do away with the papacy. I want to do away with all these things. I have a problem. He had a problem with indulgences, the idea of buying grace, buying salvation, buying forgiveness of sins. He says, this is wrong. This is an abuse. And so he said, we need to talk about this. So he, he nailed 95, he wrote down 95 complaints, contentions with the Catholic church. He nailed them to the church door and he said, let's talk about it. We need to talk. Let's talk theologians. Let's talk bishops. Let's talk priests. Let's talk Rome. And what did Rome say? Rome said, nope, we're not talking to you. We're not talking to you. What happened around that time was the, the printing press had just been invented. 
not too long before Luther nailed those complaints onto the church door. So the, the, the organization of the church said, no, we're not going to talk to you. But those 95 complaints, they got printed and they got distributed all over Germany and eventually all over Europe. And so now all of Europe is reading these complaints and it's stirring, it's sparking a fire of the Reformation and people are saying, yes, that's not right. Yes, scripture doesn't say this or it doesn't say that about righteousness, about justification, about indulgences, about purgatory, about the papacy, about priest, about infant baptism, across the board. This is not what scripture says. And so four years later, almost four years later, after he nailed those complaints and after an uproar is beginning to develop throughout all of Europe, Rome says, you need to come talk to us. You're a heretic. You're a heretic. It's called a papal bull, which, which means that you got to come talk to us, to the emperor, and you have to make a decision. You're a heretic, and you're either going to recant what you say or you're going to be charged as a heretic. So they call Martin Luther. On April 17, 1521, he comes and stands before Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. And they have in the room, I have in the room all of his books, hundreds of books out on this table. And they're looking at the books and, and they, the short of it is they tell Luther, do you, do you believe that? Do you believe that that's true? Do you believe that this is what God's word says? Would you say that there is no error in your books? And Luther said, wait a minute. I need time to think about that. Because what, what a question to be asked. Is there any error in your books? And he said, can you give me 24 hours? I will come back and I will, I will let you know. And so they gave him 24 hours. And he comes back. He comes back and he stands before the Holy Roman Emperor and all the court that is there. And this is what Luther says. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not trust the authority of popes, and councils because they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. So help me God, amen. What did, what did Luther say there? And, and you know, I, I don't think we really understand the weight of that because we're 500 years later. We, we don't get papal bulls and get sent to Rome. All right? His life was on the line. He, he could have been killed. Actually, he had to go into hiding after this for two years. He had to change his name. He had a, he had a, 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 a pseudo name. His name was Junker George. He grew this big old beard. Junker George in hiding. And you know what Junker George did, a.k.a. Martin Luther, for two years in a castle in hiding? He translated the Bible from Latin to German for his people. But you know what was on the line? It wasn't just his reputation. It wasn't just the view that he was a heretic. They burned heretics. They martyred heretics. So for him to stand and look at the Holy Roman Emperor, what did he say? What was the key sentence? He says, my conscience is bound to the word of God. It's not bound to popes. It's not bound to councils. It's not bound to traditions. Why? Because popes can err. Councils can err. Traditions can be wrong. They can err. Martin Luther said, my conscience is bound to the word of God. I will not recant that I believe that the final authority is scripture. Eric Metaxas wrote a book about Martin Luther's life, a biography of Martin Luther. He puts this, he put 
what Luther said like this. The Catholic Church reserved the right to say that it and it alone spoke for God. Whereas Luther, in pointing out that the Pope had erred and church councils had erred, was saying that the church could not reserve the right to speak for God. Therefore, if the church and popes and councils could err and sometimes not speak for God and his truth, then only the scriptures could be, the, they be that inerrant standard to which everyone, including the church, must submit to. Therefore, if the scriptures plainly said something different from what councils and popes said, it must be the councils and popes who were in error and were obliged to change their views. And that is the foundation of the Protestant Reformation. This is why I could have went to grace alone first and then faith alone. We could have looked at those tenets, but this is why scripture alone is the foundation of the Protestant Reformation. Who has the final say? Who has the final authority? Scripture alone is the test of truth and the only standard for doctrine in Christian conscience. So as I said earlier, Luther, he goes into hiding after this and he translates the Bible from Latin into the German language so that the common man or woman could have access to the word of God so that everyone's conscience could be bound to the word of God. Not their conscience bound to what the Pope says. Not their conscience bound to what the Catholic Diocese magazine says. Not their conscience bound to what, to what tradition says, but their conscience so that everyone could read the word of God. And he was wanting to do that for his German people, for the, for the people of his homeland, so that all of their conscience could be bound to the word of God. You know, scripture translated in Latin was what the church had done for centuries. They kept the language of scripture locked up from the common people. People didn't speak Latin in Europe as a common language. It was not common. So what it did was, and here was the idea. I want to tell you what the idea was. The idea was, was that common, uneducated people could not interpret scripture properly. So we're going to keep the Bible in a language that only the educated can understand so that we can interpret the scripture and we can tell people what they are to believe and what scripture says. And you know what happened was, was that of course there's going to be error. Of course there's going to be ideas and beliefs and doctrines that are added to scripture because there's no accountability. I mean, just think about it practically. If we, if we had a church service here today in Latin and I told you, and none of you spoke Latin, and I told you this is what God's word says, you're taking my word for it, Right? But whenever you can read your Bible and you can go home and I say something and you look at your Bible and you say, wait a minute, this is, this is not right. This is not good. This is not what scripture says. This is what had happened. And this was a reformation that needed to happen. There needed to be a return to the primacy of scripture that the very, listen, the very breathed out words of God must be able to be read by everyone. They must be accessible, but the church had locked them up. So I gotta ask you a question. Do you have your Bibles with you this morning? I just wanna say this too, by the way, I think it is a crutch that we use screens for scripture. You need to bring your Bible to church. And I think by the time I'm done with this section here, you're gonna to wanna to bring your Bible to church. Do you have your Bible? Can you put your hands on it? Put your hands on your Bible? You feel that? You open your Bible, you see the words that are in there. What language is that? It's the English language, right? So Luther spent two years in hiding translating the Bible from Latin to German 
so that his people could read the Bible. How did we get our English Bible? How did you get your Bible if it was in Latin in the medieval centuries? So now we have an English Bible. How did that happen? How did it get from Latin to English so that we can hold our Bible and read it? I want you to know today that the reason, the reason that we have an English translation of the Bible, and we have many of them, is because of the work of a criminal. A criminal who broke the law of England is the reason why you have a Bible and you can read it here today. You guys wanna know that story, the brief version of that story? How did that happen? What happened was, was that the Reformation, as I said earlier, was spreading across Europe. And so in 1494, there was a a man, this criminal that was born, his name was William Tyndale. William Tyndale was born in 1494 in Gloucestershire, England. He studied at Oxford. He went to Oxford at 16 years old. Went to Oxford at 16 years old. He was proficient in eight languages, including Greek and Hebrew, including Latin. Eight languages. He was, he was a brilliant mind. And so he becomes a priest. He feels like he wants to study God's word and he can read the scriptures because he is proficient in eight languages, in Greek and Hebrew and in Latin. And so he begins to study God's word and he begins to read God's word. He comes to faith in Jesus Christ after he became a priest. Because what's interesting, when you study William Tyndale's life, the seminary he went to, to study how to become a priest, they didn't study the Bible. That's one of of the things that Tyndale said. They didn't study the Bible. They studied tradition and, and the church fathers and Catholic dogma. But he understood and could read and understand the languages. And he got born again after he became a priest. And so William Tyndale, he began to have this passion to translate the Bible from Latin to English, just as Martin Luther had that same passion. And Tyndale began to see, as he's getting older, he began to see the effect that Luther was having in Germany and how it was spreading across Europe. And he said, our people need this. We need to have scripture. And, but it was illegal. It was literally illegal. The king of England made it illegal years earlier, centuries earlier, for the scriptures to be translated from Latin to English. He knew it was against the law, but he said, he said that people have, my people have to hear the word of God. And so there were people that were sympathetic to his cause. There were people that said, yes, yes, we agree with you and we want you to do that. And there was one man, his name is John Walsh. And John Walsh took him in and said, we're gonna help fund this. We're gonna support you on this journey of taking the Bible from Latin and translating it into English. And John Walsh, one day, the story goes, this is, this is leading up to one of the most famous sentences by, statements by William Tyndale. John Walsh invites another Catholic priest to come to have lunch with William Tyndale. And they're having lunch, and this Catholic priest begins to talk to William Tyndale. William Tyndale is kind of challenging the priest on some of the Catholic doctrines and dogmas. And the priest says, the Pope says this, and church, the church fathers say this, and And William Tyndale would say, yeah, but the Bible says this. The priest would get irritated and frustrated and say, yeah, but but the Pope says this and tradition says this. And Tyndale would say, yeah, but, like that irritating little person that comes back and says, yeah, but, this is what the Bible says. And finally, the priest is exasperated and he stood up and he pointed his finger at Tyndale and and he said this, we were better without God's law than the Pope's. We were, we were better without God's law than the Pope. William Tyndale looked at him, 
This is his most famous statement. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scripture than the Pope in Rome. Wow. He's 32 years old, by the way. (laughs) 32 years old. And this was the beginning of one of the sparks that drove him to say, I'm going to translate scripture. And what was interesting was in that time, there were over 2,000 printing presses in Europe. Over 2,000. Two of them were in England. Two of them were in England. Now, Germany, because of the influence of Martin Luther, there was, there was uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of printing presses. So he knew that if he was going to do his translating work, if he was going to be a criminal, I'm leaving England and I'm going to Germany. So he goes to Germany. He spends 12 years in Germany. He spends 12 years with this passion to translate scripture. And there's many details of the story that I'm going to leave out, but, but he, was on, he was on the run constantly. He spent, he spent multiple years, and he finished the New Testament translation of Scripture. And he had over 2,000 copies that they had printed, and they stuffed them in crates uh, underneath cotton. They shipped them from, England to, uh, uh, from, from Germany to England. It spread all over England. But, but before they could get the shipment into the crates, be, 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 before he could protect all of his work that he had had, there was a raid on the printing press and they destroyed years and years worth of his work and he had to start over with the translation of the New Testament and begin translating the Old Testament. And he just spent years and years of this work and it was his driving passion. It was the rock solid conviction that he had that all humans were in bondage to sin that they were blind, dead, and damned, and helpless, and that God had acted in Christ to provide salvation by grace through faith. This is what lay hidden in the Latin scriptures and the church system of penance and merit. And this is why the Bible had to be translated into English. That was the driving conviction that Tyndale had. So he didn't stop. He spent a total of 12 years hiding from city to city in Germany, working on his translation. He completed all of the New Testament, and three quarters of the Old Testament. The first translation into English. And I want you to think about this, okay? This is very profound to think about. This is in the 1500s, the mid-1500s. There was not an English dictionary yet that was gonna come around until the early 1700s. Think about that. There was no objective standard for the English language, and here is this man translating the Bible from Latin to English with no dictionary. I mean, how profound is that? What brilliant mind that is. Scholars say that 90% of the King James Bible was from William Tyndale's work. 90% of the King James Bible, which is the gold standard, right, was from William Tyndale's work. Some of these phrases I'm going to read to you that are popular phrases in Scripture that we've all grown up saying, it was William Tyndale's work. Listen to some of these phrases. My brother's keeper, knock and it shall be opened unto you. I want you to think about this. This is, there's no English standard dictionary as a guide. He's translating. He's coming up with these words. This is what this means in Latin. You guys get that? I don't, you get how significant that is? There's no standard. And he's, he's, he's taking these scriptures. He's putting, God's helping him with these ideas, right? Knock and it shall be open to you. Came from William Tyndale. That's what the Bible says, but he helped, he helped frame it in the twinkling of an eye. Fashion not yourselves to the world. Seek and you shall find. Ask and it will be given you. Judge not that you be not judged. Let there be light. 
Let, let the powers that be, the salt of the earth, a law unto themselves, it came to pass, the sign of the times. These are all phrases that, that Tyndale translated from Latin. Isn't that powerful? And many, many more. So he was finally captured for his illegal activity in 1535. You know what's interesting how he was captured? They couldn't, they couldn't get him on his own, right? They had to, Rome had, England had to have, Rome and England had to have a clandestine mission to capture Tyndale because of how much he was loved and how much people protected him. And this is what happened. There was a, a young man who took his father's inheritance and he, and he went and he squandered all of the inheritance. And one of the bishops of England found out about that young man and he called the young man in and said, I got a plan for you. I will pay back every penny that you squandered of your dad's inheritance if you will give me William Tyndale. So the man went out and that was his mission. He went to Germany and he found William Tyndale. He befriended him. And William Tyndale believed he was a genuine friend. And one day, after a course of a couple of years of building his friendship, one day, the guy takes him out to lunch. Tyndale wouldn't even go out into public. The friend convinced him, the so-called friend convinced him to go out into public. He goes out into public and there's guards waiting for him. They arrest him. They bring him to a prison. 16 months, he stays in a prison. He's charged as being a heretic. And this is what they did. His crime was the translating of the Bible into the English language. And this is what they did to William Tyndale. Hold your Bible again. You don't have to. But today, hold your Bible when you read it today. The crime for translating the Bible from Latin to English, the Bible you get to hold, this is what happened to William Tyndale. They stripped him of his priestly garments. They had him put on his priestly garments so that they could strip him in public of his priestly garments. They tied him to a stake in the town square. And because he was a priest, he was declared as somebody who was to speak for God. This, the punishment of how he would die was that they, they would strangle him. So they tied him to a stake. They strangled him. Then they set his dead body on fire. And if that wasn't enough, they put gunpowder all around his body and they blew him up into a thousand pieces. Before they strangled him and killed him, they gave him one last chance to speak and this is what he prayed. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. I believe God answered that prayer. 10 months after Tyndale's death. 10 months. King Henry VIII, he authorized a translation of the Bible from Latin to English. He authorized it, and they used Tyndale's work as the foundation. It was called the Great Bible of 1539. God opened the eyes of the King of England. That was the first translation, right? Completed translation. Eventually, 1611, we get the King James Version of Scripture. So you may say, well, what, what, what do these historical facts, how do they impact my life today as concerning scripture? How does it really impact me? Well, I'm just here to tell you that the Bible you hold today came down to you through a, a, a trail of blood. We have it today because people, because this man in particular laid down his life and said, I want you, I want English speaking people to be able to read the Bible and to have the scripture as a sole authority for their life. But how does it impact us in our daily life? How should these centuries old historical facts shape our life today concerning our relationship to the word of God? I'm gonna give you four things real quick. You guys with me? First one is this. Misrepresenting 
twisting and adding to scripture is offensive to God. That's how this impacts us. Misrepresenting, twisting, and adding to scripture as a final authority is offensive to God. What was the first scripture that I read? All scripture is what? Breathed out by God. And what did it cost the reformers throughout history that stood on the doctrine of sola scriptura that says that scripture alone is the final authority? It's a final authority for salvation, for faith, for practice, for the Christian life. So when somebody misrepresents God, when they twist his words, when they add to scripture, it is offensive to God. It's offensive to God. You know what that's called? That's called, that's called slander. Right? It's called, it's called, um, can't think of the other legal term. Libel. It's called libel. You know, in 2010, you guys, you might not remember this, but Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie weren't divorced yet. But somebody said they were divorced and they were getting a a divorce in 2010. A magazine called or website called News of the World spread all around the world that Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie were divorcing. They were splitting their income. They were splitting all of their, their possessions. And you know what Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie did? They sued them for libel. For defamation was the word I was trying to think of. They sued them. You are misrepresenting me, misrepresenting us. You guys remember, maybe not. This is pretty obscure history here that we don't really study. Katie Holmes, 2011. The son, tabloid, said she was a drug addict. And she wasn't. It was defamation, twisting of the truth. And she sued. Why is it? that when a pope or a priest or a Protestant preacher can get up and misrepresent scripture, twist scripture, add to scripture, that we don't think anything of it? Why is it that, why is it that, that we're so quick to say, ah, they don't really, that's not really what they're saying. Oh, they're, they're, you just are misinterpreting it. Scripture is scripture and scripture is clear and it's plain. It's one of the doctrines of the faith, the clarity of Scripture, the the perspicuity of Scripture. It's clear. We can understand it. And I think we need, this is so applicable to us in our life, that because these are the very breathed out words of God, that we would take it more serious when Scripture is twisted and it's misrepresented and it's added to. Why? Because it's not my words. You can twist my words. Go ahead. I'm not going to sue you. You can twist my words. You can misrepresent me. But we can't misrepresent God. I just want to, I want to challenge you with this. As I went over last week, the glaring errors of the Catholic Church as concerning justification, infant baptism. What did, what did the Eucharist, what, what did the catechism say when I read it last week? The church knows no other way that salvation comes except through infant baptism, right? When I went over last week, the glaring errors of justification, mediation, infant baptism, the Eucharist, the papacy, the infallibility of the Pope, right? It went over all these errors. The priesthood as the priest is being able to forgive all sins, the catechism says. Purgatory. All these things that we don't see in Scripture. Someone may say, well, well someone may react and say, well, why make a big deal about these things? Yeah, they, they might not be in Scripture, but what about all the good? What, what about all the good? The question is, That's the wrong question. The question we have to ask ourselves is this. 
why would we tolerate unbiblical doctrine and dogma at all? Why would we tolerate that? What's, what's the motivation? And here's, here's the answer that I believe is, is true. The reason we tolerate unbiblical doctrine is because we don't really believe the Bible is the word of God. I want you to think about that for a moment. If we are ever unwilling to say, no, that is wrong, that is error, that's not biblical, then that means that we don't really believe this is the very breathed out words of God. If we will sue somebody for defaming us, but we won't clearly call out error when it's error, and I, look, it could be Rome or it could be me. It could be Rome or it could be your favorite YouTube preacher. Whoever it is, if it contradicts scripture and it's not biblical, if we don't stand up and say, no, that's wrong, it's because we really don't believe that the Bible is the word of God. Because if we do believe that scripture is the actual breathed out words of God, then unbiblical doctrine is not just wrong, it's offensive to God. Us being offended by what God's word says is not the biggest issue. You guys realize that? The biggest issue is that we would offend God by tolerating lies that blaspheme his holy word. So I have a que another question for you. What ideas that are contrary to scripture are you willing to tolerate? Do, do we have a list? Do we, do, do, do we wanna make a list? No. <laughs> I know this is not easy, but what, what, which ones are we willing to tolerate? Let's, let's make a list. This is not found in scripture. This is right, we go through a list. That's not found. I'm not willing to tolerate any of it. I'm not saying we gotta hold up signs in front of your local Catholic parish. But what I'm saying is, is that you have to develop a conviction in your heart that scripture is the final authority. And let, let God be true and every man a liar. If Christians, Christians claim to hold scripture as a final authority, they should never be able to simply wink at blatant unbiblical beliefs and practices. Some, some might say, Pastor Ben, why do you have to point these things out, could be offensive. Well, you can be thankful that I'm Pastor Ben and not the Apostle Peter. We're going through 2 Peter next month or next couple of months, we're gonna go through 2 Peter. Listen to 2 Peter as he addresses false teachers. He's not addressing the false teaching, he's addressing the false teachers. Listen to this language. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. But these, like irrational animals... Creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. These people, these false teachers are like waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. There's no substance to them. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. But the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. So in some sense, I'm kind of being light. I'm not calling anybody animals. I'm just, gonna, just reading the Bible. So here's, I'm going to transition here. 
But the test of our time as believers is here, and it's only going to increase in pressure. The, the test is this. Do we believe that all the Bible teaches? Do we believe all that the Bible teaches? Do we believe it all? That's the test of today. Culture is pressuring us. Do we believe it or will we not believe it? Are we going to compromise? Do we actually believe it's the word of God? And we're looking at, 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 at how the church erred in these major foundational doctrines. But today, gender, sexuality, marriage, family, right? Are we really going to believe? The pressure's not going away. It is the test of our time, and it will only increase as the years go along. Do we believe all that the Bible teaches? And there is a rapidly growing. If you're not paying attention, I encourage you to look at it. There's a rapidly growing division in the church. Those who hold a commitment to the inerrancy, the authority and sufficiency of scripture, and those who cave to social pressure and deny the former. It is a rapidly developing trend. So that's the first practical reason. Misrepresentation, twisting of scripture. We can't tolerate that. Secondly, here today, how does this apply to your life? Because the word of God is the final authority, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe in the priesthood of all believers because we believe God has finally spoken in scripture, is the final authority. We believe that as, as believers, we are all priests. Here's a definition of the priesthood of all believers. The doctrine of the priesthood of all believers states that all believers in Christ share in his priestly status. Therefore, there's no special class of people who mediate the knowledge, presence, and forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers. And all believers have the right and authority to read, interpret, and apply the teaching of Scripture. Okay? So you had the Old Testament pattern the priesthood, right? Where God established the Old Testament sacrificial system and the priests would mediate the sacrifices to the people. And then the new covenant, who was the priest of the new covenant? Christ. And he became the mediator. So now through faith in Christ, we no longer have to go back to a, a priesthood to have mediation take place for us, as we read last week in the book of Hebrews. And so under that principle, this is what scripture says, under that truth, 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're a royal priesthood. This biblical doctrine is that, is that we can come before God. God has made the way for us to come before the throne of grace and we don't need any other, any other mediation from any other man. You don't, have to, you don't have to wait on me tomorrow morning to come at your house to help you to read your Bible, to translate it, to interpret it for you. You can open your Bible, you can read it, you can learn it, you can interpret it, you can allow the Holy Spirit to, to work in your heart as you, as you read scripture. This, this doctrine of the priesthood of all, all believers is not a, a liberation of authority from authority because that's what the Catholic Church was concerned about. You just can't have a bunch of people going around and reading the Bible. They're going to reject authority. It's actually not a rejection of authority. It is a submission to the authority of God's word, the final authority. So it's actually, it's, it's not a liberation. It's a responsibility. So now through faith in Christ as a believer, you don't just get to sit back and wait on me to do everything for you. Do you, you, you follow that? You don't get to let me live your Christian life. You don't get to let me be the only one that interprets scripture for you. I'm not the only one that gets to live your Christian life for you. You don't get to live it through me. You live your Christian life. You're responsible be, be, before the Lord to go before him. This is the priesthood of all believers. The third way in which it meets our life 
this view of the final authority of God's word is that to have God's word is the most precious possession we could ever obtain. The most precious possession. Look at what Psalm 19 says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment, the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And God's word, his rules, his commandments are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So think of it. The creator of the universe has spoken to us. The first way he's spoken to us is through creation. You look around at creation and the book of Psalms says, only a fool would say in his heart there's no God. So God gives us general revelation. You look at the ordered creation that we live in, the fact that we can even exist with oxygen on this planet, the fact, the fact that, that, that we can sustain human life. You look at even our physical bodies, the complexities of our bodies and how it works. It's like a fine-tuned engine. Some of you think, Pastor Ben, you, you, you got your wrong glasses on today, <laughs> right? When you look at me, I'm not a fine-tuned engine, right? But it is a fine-tuned engine. All the parts and components of the body put together, not evolving from evolution, but created by a loving creator. So complex, God has spoken to us through creation. That God of the universe, the universe that is continually expanding to this day. We can't even, we can't even fathom how large the universe is. That God who spoke to us generally through creation, he spoke to us then through Christ. He comes down in special revelation. God becomes man and he walks on the earth and he dies the death that we deserve because of our sin. And he demonstrates to us what God is like and what, he, what, what are his standards, what is his message. And Christ comes and it is the mediator. God speaks through creation. He speaks through his son. And then God spoke through scripture. God spoke through scripture. He said, I'm going to inspire men to write down my words and I'm going to preserve these in such a special way so that when my words get to, to people, whether they are Christians or non-Christians, it is life. The non-believer can be born again and the Christian can be sanctified. The very breathed out words of God from the God of creation to the God who gives us scripture, he is speaking. So how much money would you like to have? How many possessions would you like to purchase with that wealth? You guys, wanna, you guys want some money? How, students here, how much money would you like to make? A lot? A lot of money? How much money do you think you need? A lot of money, right? Well, I just here to tell you, when you get married and you have kids, you need a lot of money. It is, man, I tell you what, we don't save because we can't save because we save, but we can't save because... We have four kids. It's just, it's just, the money just flies away every day. I want to show you a picture of the crown jewels of England. They're estimated to be worth $4 billion. Look at that. Can you imagine getting your hand on that? Now, they're not selling it, so if you have $4 billion to buy it, it's not for sale. I want you to look at this next picture. This is the first copy of William Tyndale's English translation. 
on display in England, just like the crown jewels, which one do you think is more valuable? Well, of course, yeah, it's the right answer, right? Who's going to say the crown jewels? <laughs> but think about that. What's the most valuable thing we can possess? If God has truly spoken to humanity and we have it inscripturated, it's the most valuable thing anyone could ever possess. So if you buy a copy of Holy Scripture, it is worth more than all the crown jewels. It's worth all, more than all the money and all the earth and all the possessions that can be acquired this side of heaven. What's the fourth way in which this applies to our life about the word of God being the final authority? Lastly, here this morning, the word of God has the power to accomplish what men are incapable of. The word of God has the power to accomplish what men are incapable of. This is called the sufficiency of scripture. Here's a definition of the sufficiency of scripture. This is from Matthew Barrett's book, God's Word, God's Word Alone. He says this, the sufficiency of scripture means that all things necessary for salvation and for living the Christian life in obedience to God and for his glory are given to us in the scriptures. All that we need for salvation and for living the Christian life are given to us in scripture. This is why the, uh, the scripture is a final authority. It's all we need for the Christian life. Hebrews 4 says this, the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces, it cuts, it divides, it discerns the thoughts and tensions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. Isaiah 55 says about the word of God, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The sufficiency of scripture. As a final authority, scripture is sufficient for all that we need in our Christian life. So how does this sufficiency of scripture meet real life? I think it, it meets real life like this. Sufficiency is a comfort to the preacher in ministry. Just want you to know that if I stood up here and I didn't believe in the authority of scripture, the inerrancy, the authority, the sufficiency, I'd be a weak preacher, preaching my own opinions, telling you pop psychology and how to have a better life. I'd, you know, and you can get, those preachers are a dime a dozen. But I stand, when I stand up here and I stand on the sole authority of scripture and I know it is sufficient, that my job is not to try to convince you how to have a better life. My job is not to try to convince you uh, uh, or show you how you can be successful and happy in your marriage or on your job. That's not my job. I can't speak from authority when I do that. Anybody can tell you that. You could have anybody get up here and tell you good ideas. But when a preacher stands in the pulpit and holds up the very breathed out words of God, the sufficient, all authoritative, in, inerrant scripture, that is when I have authority. That's whenever I can stand. I have no authority in and of myself, but I have authority when I stand and I open the Bible and I say, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> Sufficiency is a comfort to me. I don't have to convince you to believe me. I have to plead with you to believe God. Sufficiency moves the believer from head knowledge to action. 
If you believe that this is the final authority, it is sufficient for everything in your life, then it moves you from head knowledge to action. The Bible is just not to accumulate knowledge. It's actually to be lived out in your life. Scripture is, a, is sufficient for every area of your life. Thirdly, sufficiency reminds us that God's word is to take center stage in the church. If it is the very breathed out words of God, and it is, if it is authoritative, inerrant, and sufficient, it must be center stage in all that we do in the church. And I believe that the evangelical church in a lot of parts has sold out to the culture. Churches will often approach worship like they're selling a product. I'm not here to sell anything to you. I'm here to plead with you. Believe God. Believe his word. But so often churches are like, it's like they're trying to sell something. The sufficiency of scripture when applied in ministry it's like pouring an ice-cold bucket of water on the face of the church to wake them up. No longer can we turn to the culture to decide what the church should be and do. God, his gospel, and his bride are not products to be sold. At its most basic level, this means that the word of God must take first place among the people of God. Sunday mornings are focused not around flashy guitar solos, funny jokes, or feel-good messages, but around the proclamation of God's word. Do you believe that here today? So sola scriptura, scripture alone, was the foundation of the Reformation, and it will continue to be the foundation of Reformation in the life of the church. Why? Because it will continue to be the standard by which we gauge everything that we say and do as Christians and as a church. It will, it's what keeps us in line. It's what keeps me in line. Scripture is the test. We will continue to hold it up high. You guys remember Martin Luther's stand? Unless I am convinced by Scripture in plain reason, I do not trust the authority of popes and councils because they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. Here I stand. I can do no other so Help me, God. I want to read this in conclusion. This is a book I recommend to you. It's called The, the Gathering Storm. It's by R. Albert Mulder Jr. from Albert Mulder Jr. The, the brothers in the eldership program are going to be going through this book next month. I'm going to read this section to you. I think he frames this very well. Today's evangelicals, as the theological heirs of Martin Luther and many others, cannot capitulate to the, to the demands for a revolution in Christian doctrine and morality. An affirmation of the divine inspiration and authority of the Bible has stood at the center of the evangelical faith since the 16th century. And as the heirs of the Christian faith for more than 2,000 years, we are those who confess along with the faithful throughout the centuries that when scripture speaks, God speaks. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority for life and doctrine. In a sense, a Christian theology hangs on the accuracy of that singular proposition. The Christian church cannot long survive without the church's explicit commitment to the authority of Scripture and to the Lord Jesus Christ above all else. Without the authority of Scripture, our theological convictions will mirror the secularism of the larger society. We will merely espouse conjectures rather than infinite and lasting convictions and our preaching will dwindle to nothing more than a display of empty promises. I believe it's true. I believe it's true. 
as it says in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Where are you placing your hope today? In popes, in councils, in traditions, in your great-grandmother's Catholic faith? Where are you placing it? you placing it in Christ and Christ alone as revealed through the final authority of scripture? I pray that you are today. God, I thank you for your word here today. I thank you for what you have revealed to us through scripture. The only true divine revelation. Your word is sufficient for every area of our life. And I pray that, that we would not tolerate and we would not wink at misrepresentations and twisting and adding to scripture, but that we would be a new generation of reformers, that we would stand up and that we would say, no, this is not biblical. Scripture is the test. We will stand on scripture. And when we stand on scripture, we're standing with you. And I pray, God, that, that this would be at the foundation of our life in every area, that when scripture speaks, you speak. And that when you speak to our hearts through scripture, our lives are changed. And I pray that this would be true for each one of us. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I, I, I love you. I'll see you next week.